We are grateful to be back in the house of the Lord. I'm so grateful to the Lord for who he is and just the days that he meets us in unique ways and he greets us and his presence is, is felt and clear. We're just, we're just grateful for that. We're grateful to be joining back in in the word of God in First Samuel again this week. And um, I'm telling you, just the Lord is amazing. God is good and he has met us, I think, every week in his word. And as we've been going through and working through First Samuel, there are some themes that we have seen kind of consistently that are, that are really pushing towards us, that really help us understand our relationship with God. And at the, at the, I guess at the center of all of it, there's been this underlying theme of obedience, our need to be obedient to God, our desire to be pleasing to God, which inevitably means that we would be obedient to him. And so the title of today's sermon is, It Pays to Obey. It Pays to Obey. And, you know, that's going to have a lot more meaning once we really get into the sermon itself. But I really want to jump right into the Word so we can look at it and really get to it. But out of all the things that I hope that we learn today is that out of everything that we will give God, we will always try to meet God with our sacrifices. We will always try to meet God with our offerings and with our deeds, but ultimately God wants rendered to him a life of sacrificial obedience. And so I pray that we can see that and see how God is glorified in that. So look with me, if you will, First Samuel chapter 7. We're going to start at the third verse. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherah and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel and Mizpah and, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called his name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There, were, there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. 
and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, um, for one more opportunity to hear your word. God, let us hear with clarity. Let us hear the truth, God, but let this truth be heard in such a way that it transforms us, that it changes us. God, help us see more than any other time that we cannot meet you with any of our filthy righteousness, God, but that unless you meet us, we have nothing to give to you. So, Lord, we pray that after we hear this word and hear this sermon, that we'll be prepared to give all of ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so if we have learned anything over the past um, number of weeks that we've been in 1 Samuel, more than anything, we have learned that God deals with his people in, in a few ways. One of the ways is that he deals with his people in covenants. That means that he makes a promise with his people. But also within those covenants, there are often conditions. Now, there are two types of promises that God makes with his people. One of those promises is that he makes an everlasting promise, which means there are no conditions. As long as the Lord God live, this promise shall be held up. But then there's another kind of promise that he makes, and that is a conditional promise or a conditional covenant where it is if you do this, then this will be the result. It is one of the things that people, again, have struggled with in terms of God. They don't like the fact that God does deal in conditions. Now, he is a God who loves us, but the measure of that love that God has for us actually varies based on the condition of the people. And when you tell people that, they don't like that. They don't like the fact that God loves some people differently than he does other people, but it is the truth. Look at our opening verse here. What is the word that comes from Samuel? It comes to us as a condition, and we see it. If you do this, then this is what will happen. If you are returning to the Lord, put away your foreign gods, give him your heart, serve him only, and then he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Well, let's wait a minute here. Haven't we learned all this time that God is not a God who is moved by our works? Well, yes, we have. That God is not a God who is impressed with our deeds. Yes, we've learned that. Well, that hasn't changed, but see, God's requirements of us have also not changed. And they never changed for Israel either. He established a conditional promise with them that if they obeyed God, they would thrive. That is the condition. If you are obedient, he tells them, I will give you victory over the Philistines. That means that there is a special way that God administers his love to those who respond to his love with obedience. Do we understand this? We are shown this clearly in Scripture, by the way, and we are probably shown it most clearly in the New Testament. 
There are two ways that God expresses his love to people, to man, and it is not the same way. The most quoted verse, perhaps, in the Bible that most people know from birth is John 3.16. For God so loved the world. We know it. We even know the measurement of that love, that he gave us his son. And that is the truth we know because Scripture says it is the truth. But you see, the Bible also tells us in Romans that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So that means that we need to examine this. When we read about love in John 3.16, is that the same love that we cannot be separated from in Romans? Are these the same types of love? Well, no, they're not. This is is when it is actually important to kind of have studied the language and know the language and the usage of these different words. The word that is used in John 3.16 in that verse in order to describe love, you would think is agape, perfect, unconditional love. That's what you would think. But it's actually not. It's agapeo. And this word actually means general love, a general affection that God has for all his people. You know, the way we have all been called to generally love one another, whether or not you've even met the person, whether or not you know the person, whether or not you have an intimate relationship with the person, we have been called to generally love everyone because everyone is an image bearer of God. So we don't have to know these people in order to love these people. And by the way, the Bible tells us, as we read, God so loved the world, that general affection that God has for us was enough to get him to commit his son to us. But this is the thing. Does that love have conditions? No. There are no prerequisites. There are no qualifications for that type of love. When does the Bible tell us that Christ died for us? Was it when we were lovable? No. Was it when we were saved? No. Was it when we were obedient? No. The Bible makes it clear that Christ loved us while we were yet sinners. That means God's general love for us is enough to give us his son in order to be the atonement for our sins. I can't love anybody generally enough in that way. I don't love anybody in general enough affection to give any of my children for them. Yet God's general affection for us is so expansive that even when we were in a state of being unlovable, Christ died for us. That is a special kind of love. When we were apart from him, that did not stifle the way that he loved us because we are all his creation. Now, having this understanding is key, especially when we are committing or communicating with people who do not know the Lord. Why is it key to understand that? Because it actually is not enough to tell people that Jesus loves you 
and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes, in general, (laughs) he loves you, but it isn't the same as the love that we see described in Romans. Because in general, God loves all of his creation, but Psalms tells us that he's angry with the wicked all the time. It says in Romans that there is nothing that can separate us from the love. And this is where we get the agape of God. Can something separate us from the general love of God? Yeah. Something does separate us from the general love of God. It's sin. And we know that. We don't like it, but we know it. Adam and Eve were separated from God because of their sin. They were removed from his presence. So we know that God loves us generally, but he does not love us the same way as he does when we are in relationship with him. That is a different administration of his love. One day, a boy's dad decided to take him and his son's friend out for a day of fun. And so they went to the park. They went to the skating rink. They did everything that the boy wanted to do that day. But then his son started to get a little annoyed. He noticed that his dad was laughing and playing with his friend as much as he did with him. And he felt like maybe he loved his friend more than he loved his his own son. And so by the time the day was over, the son was downright angry. And once they dropped his friend off, his dad, noticing that he was upset, asked him, what's wrong with you? Because he had no filter. He just blurted out, you love him more than you love me. And his dad just looked at him. And he said, but son, you stay with me. He said, huh? He said, you stay with me, son. Yes, I love him, but I just sent him home. I just sent him away. I would never send you away. You're my child. The dynamic of our relationship with God is that when we enter a covenant relationship with him, we have parameters placed around that love. We move from this general worldly affection and love that God has for all creation to this very specific and redeeming love. See, when you see that this sermon is titled, It Pays to Obey, it does seem like the implication is that if you do the right stuff, then you will be rewarded. But that's not the case. In fact, if all of us could just do the right stuff, we would. But this is the way that it has always been, that it's always been about the heart. In the previous sermon, preached in this pulpit, Pastor Mike mentioned Cain and Abel, and, and there's something dynamic that we learn about that, is that Cain brings his sacrifice. He is obedient by definition, but the problem is, is that his heart was not as committed as his offering. Obedience minus a commission from your heart is not obedience. Notice the conditions that are in our text. He says that if you are returning to the Lord with all your 
heart. There it is. That's the key. That's the key. Obedience to God is not an action issue. It is a heart issue. I'm not saying that a person is unable to do the right thing that is required of them without a heart change, but I am saying that it is not true obedience when that happens. It's just action. And I don't know about you, but lots of people can just do stuff. How many times have we told a child to do something that if they elected not to do, there would be a piece of leather on the other side of their wrong decision? And so they do it, not out of love, but out of fear. They don't want a whooping. If you lock someone in a room and told them, okay, stay in here until I get back, don't leave, you would not return to that room and marvel at their obedience because you never gave them the choice to leave. Even if their heart wanted to leave, they couldn't. But let me tell you the kind of obedience that God wants from us. God wants from us the kind of obedience, the kind of love that says that even if the cell doors fly open, I will still choose to be wherever you are, God. How does that happen? How do we get to that point? That happens when God has our affections, when God has our desires, when God has our love. See, since we have come to Christ, the mark of our Christianity is that he has made us new creations. He has given us new hearts, and those hearts now have new desires. The things that I once longed for, the things that once satisfied me, the things that once fulfilled me no longer satisfy me. They no longer fulfill me because I have a new heart. And my heart, which once longed after stuff, now just longs after him. Everyone wants to know the mark of their Christianity. Even more so, if you ask any professing Christian, how do they know that they are a Christian? How do they know that they're saved? You are almost guaranteed to get a response about something that happened in the past. They would probably say, well, I walked down an aisle. It was because I said a prayer. It was because I was filled with the Holy Ghost. But to a non-believer, that only tells people what God did back then. They want to know, what is God doing in your life right now? I don't care about the fact that you say God saved you back then, What kind of relationship am I getting into that the only thing that I can refer back to is what he did 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? I want to know what is God doing in your life right now in 2022 when people in Buffalo are being slaughtered? What is God doing in your life? Give me a reason to believe. So what should the response be? Oh, let me tell you about God. He gave me a new heart. He has caused me to obsess about him and his righteousness. I have this burning desire to please him and to only be pleasing to him. I no longer live for my desires. I no longer live for my affections, 
but I live for his. And it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. If you ever ask someone what makes you a good husband, and all they could tell you was the fact that some years ago they said some vows, you know that that marriage is probably a marriage in name only. See, this is the true condition that he gives them. If you return to me with your hearts, you will be delivered out of the hand of the Philistines. That means that if you turn in repentance to God, he will give you victory over your enemy. But before we go there, before we get into that, allow me to ask you, what are the affections of your heart? What are the desires of your heart? What is the one thing that you're, you feel like if you could get that thing, that this void in your life would be complete? What is your greatest need of fulfillment? In our oft-quoted scripture, out of context it is, we say, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But see, the problem is, is that many of us have desires in our hearts that are actually contrary to what God desires for us. So what does this mean? Is he still going to give us those desires, even if those desires are contrary to him? Does that mean that this text is a lie? Maybe we should look at all the texts in order to understand the text. Psalm 37 and 3. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Oh, wait a minute. And he will give the desires of your heart. But see, there is more. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Look at this. By this description, when the Lord gives us the desires of our hearts, he is inevitably giving us himself. This is not about a car. This is not about a house. This is not about money. We are not obedient to God to get anything from him, but rather we pray that as our affection grows for him, we will desire to be more pleasing to him because we love him and we want more of him. Every now and again, I'll do something stupid every now and again. Rare occasions, really. And, you know, Christy will get upset with me. And know in my head, I can rationally think, no, she's not going to divorce me because I forgot to close the garage door all day and all the coyotes and rabbits could have infiltrated the house. I don't think that. But because my affection is for her, I don't want to do anything that displeases her. But see, I understand I'm already in a relationship with her, but I don't want anything to drive a wedge in between my affection for her. My my desire to please her and make her happy is not because I want a relationship. It's because I have a relationship. But it's because I also want to cultivate that relationship. I want her to be happy with me. I want her to be pleased with me. 
I don't I don't do it because I want anything in return, because inevitably my heart, my affection has been set on her. Same as the case in our relationship with God. God, I ain't trying to get nothing else from you but you. Listen, we talk about, I, 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 just want, I just want more of God, and I do, but the only way that I'm getting more of God is that God is getting more of me. God, I want to know you in a deeper way. That means I have to give up more of myself. And I want to cultivate that relationship through faithful and loving obedience to your word. Now, is obedience a byproduct of certain blessings? Sure, but it ain't a guarantee. But if you're just in it for what you can get from it, you were never in it to begin with. Yes, the promise to the Israelites was that if they repented, if they set their hearts on God, then they would absolutely prevail over their enemies. But you see, that was specific to them. That's like the no weapon formed against me shall prosper scripture. Well, I be saying weapons and they be prospering. All right. That was specific to the people that it was written for in that time. But see, God is not telling us that if we repent or turn our hearts to him, that we will be blessed beyond measure, that our enemies will fade away. No. That's not what he's telling us. But what but we who have turned our lives to him have, in fact, been given victory. Now, we have not been given victory over every problem, every issue that we have, but we have been given victory over our greatest enemy. And that ain't even Satan. Our greatest enemy is sin. And we have been given victory over sin. We have been given victory over death. We have been given victory over hell and the grave. What we learn from this text, probably more than anything, is even when you don't feel like it, God sees your faithfulness. Even when people don't know that you're being obedient, God sees it. That's why Jesus admonishes us. Do not be like the hypocrites who do their good deeds to be seen of men, for they have their reward. But for those of us who truly love him, who are cultivating a relationship in privacy, who are being obedient when nobody else knows, there is a reward for those of us who believe. There is an eternal inheritance awaiting us. That we are not meriting because of our good deeds, but that God has fixed a place for us in all of eternity where there is no death, where there is no sickness, where there is no hell, where there is no grave, where there is no enemy. All there is is him. And that's the day that we long for. He sees our obedience, y'all, and God is honoring that obedience. And this is why the scripture tells us obedience is better than sacrifice. See, when you give something up, when you sacrifice something, you can absolutely do that divorce from a true heart change. You know, one of the things I've learned as a pastor, I know Pastor Mike, you've seen this more than anything, but people really think tithing 
is going to get them out of some stuff. And it just don't work like that. People think church attendance is just going to get them out of some stuff, and it doesn't work like that. And the reason why is because if it were that simple, everybody would do it. But see, in order to get where we want to get in God, it requires a heart change. And I don't care how good you are. I don't care how strong you are. You've never seen a cardiologist perform heart surgery on himself. In order for us to have heart changes, there must be someone outside of ourselves who can do it in an effective way. And that's God. Unless God get a hold of our hearts, we have no opportunity at obedience. True obedience only comes from a heart changed by God. And our response to the goodness of God, our response to his faithfulness and having saved us should be a life devoted to him. If you love the Lord, If you truly love the Lord, it should be obvious. He has given up everything for us. And so our natural response to him having given up something for us is that we got to give something back to him. Romans 12 and 1 says, I beseech you. I know the King James Version more than I know the ESV. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that if you give yourselves up as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I cannot make that happen in myself. But my reasonable response to Jesus having given himself up is that I must give myself up that I must give myself away. Does it pay to obey? Of course it does. Because he already paid the way in order for us to obey. Jesus Christ on the cross already made obedience possible. And everything we do should be a response to what he has done. Listen, not only does God see and honor our obedience, God knows our disobedience as well. Our lives and our secret sins are not escaping his eye. It is not escaping his judgment. Try as we might. He sits high and he looks low. And he sees and he knows. And what I'm here to tell you is the last thing I'm going to say is that you don't have to harbor any secret sin. You don't have to harbor any hidden disobedience. He has already paid the price for that so that you can live in open freedom with God, in open obedience to him by giving him what he has given you in turn, which is your life. It pays to obey, but he paid the price in order to make that obedience possible. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for the word. God, we thank you that you have made obedience possible. God, we thank you that within ourselves, we, we actually don't have what it takes to measure up. God, we fall incredibly short. 
And we know that there is nothing that we have within ourselves, in our own strength, in our own volition, that will be pleasing to you. God, the only thing that you will honor is that when you look at our lives, that you no longer see our lives, but now that you see the righteousness of your Son. And so, God, we just pray that for every one of us that is professing our Christianity, that it won't just be a lip service, God, but that people can see our love. They can see a transformation that has been taking place in our lives. God, we devote ourselves to you. We give ourselves to you. God, as the song says, we want you to live in us, live through us, have your way in us. But God, that happens only when these broken vessels have been pieced together back by you. God, if there is anyone in this room who, who doesn't know you, God, who, who may have given their effort, who may have been willing them, themselves at some kind of way, attempting at obedience apart from you, trying to sacrifice their way to righteousness, God, help them know that there is nothing more honorable than a life that has been turned in the direction, a life of true repentance, a repentance that only happens because you have intervened. God, unless we turn to you, we will be defeated by sin. We will be defeated by death. We will be defeated by the grave and by hell. But God, in you there is victory. There is victory over death. There is victory over the grave. There is victory over our sin. God, you have saved those of us who believe from the effects of our sin and the penalty of our sin. But God, there is one day you're going to save us from the presence of our sin. God, there's anybody in this room who has not been saved from the penalty of their sins. God, I pray that this is the day that you take a hold of their heart and you replace it with a new one. And that you fill their hearts up with the desire to be pleasing to you. God, we all have thoughts about life. We all have a philosophy on how we think things should go. But, Lord, when everything else is washed away, when everything else is gone, the only thing that remains is you. And we'll have to answer to you. So God, I pray also for those of us who are in this room who are believers, but who have been harboring that secret disobedience, that secret sin, that you will remind us and strengthen us and give us what we need to remember that we can get back in line and pursue you and your righteousness. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the word. And it's such a blessing to walk in freedom and in the freedom of obedience, of a life devoted to you. God, I just pray that for every one of us in this room, you will continue to cultivate and give us that freedom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>